I'd like to talk briefly about the Prime Minister, if I may. Ma'am? Historically, I've not worried too much about Prime Minister's popularity. It tends to come and go very quickly. But I have a feeling that could be different with Mr Blair. People really do seem to love him and see him as a true son of England and a unifying national symbol in a way they used to see, well, me. And with Mr Blair scoring higher than me in every survey one can find, perhaps now is the time. Ma'am? To find out what seems to have gone wrong and how we could, I could do better. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is a show that follows the sixth and final season of the Netflix series, The Crown, episode by episode. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the creatives involved and diving deep into the stories. Today, we'll be talking about episode six, titled Ruritania. Two years into his premiership, Tony Blair continues to ride a wave of unprecedented popularity. This unnerves the Queen, who worries that the royal family's own popularity doesn't match up. When she commissions a wide-ranging poll, the results are sobering, leading the Queen to reflect on what she and the palace could be doing differently. After Blair's reputation is further cemented by his successful humanitarian intervention in Kosovo, the Queen calls on him for advice. What would he do to modernise the monarchy? We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't managed to watch episode six yet, I suggest you do that now or very soon. Coming up on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast, we'll hear from Bertie Carville, who plays Prime Minister Tony Blair. To play him as he was then, and not as we, from whatever angle, may consider him to be with the benefit of hindsight, I think is really exciting. Owen Harrison takes us behind the scenes at The Crown's props department. One of my favourite things that someone found out about was the toffee sweets that were in Margaret Thatcher's drawer at her desk in Downing Street. And when we showed Gillian that they were actually there to do it, you know, it made her feel a lot more comfortable with being in a set for the first time. Director Eric Richter-Strand tells us about returning to The Crown for the final season. Knowing everyone, just going straight to work has been lovely. And it's also been a feeling of being part of something that's coming to the end of a journey, of a long journey, yeah, which feels significant. But to kick off this episode, I sat down with the co-writer of Ruritania, Daniel Mark Jaynes. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your journey with The Crown and how you started working on the show? I've been on the show since September 2016. So approaching seven years at that time, Season one was in the can, but hadn't dropped yet. And we were filming season two. I was a story researcher, so I was working uh, both with script and other departments on the research of the show. And in spring 2020, I was promoted to staff writer, um, have a credit at the end of season five. And for this episode, episode 606, I have a co-credit with Peter at the top of the episode. That's so exciting. Oh, thanks. Congratulations. Yeah, it's quite an unorthodox route for a writer. What were the conversations that you had, though, in terms of 
the idea grown from those original kind of foundations of what the episode was set out to be. Peter has an interesting idea that he likes to talk about relating to the respective popularity of the government and the monarchy. The idea that the pendulum of popularity swings between them, that when the government's up, the monarchy's down. When the government's down, the monarchy's up. This isn't a hard and fast rule. There will be examples when they're both in the doldrums, but there are examples that come to mind. Margaret Thatcher's very imperious style, which left the royal family in the shade, taking the salute at the victory parade. Um, Or conversely, others might cite recent British political history when uh, we've had five prime ministers in seven years and people who've looked to the monarchy as stable in comparison. And I think this is a particularly extreme example of that phenomenon, the events um, following the death of Diana when the monarchy is still in that post-Diana malaise Mm. and Tony Blair's Labour government, which has the biggest majority of any government since 1945, uh, which has a political wind in its sails. The contrast is so profound uh, that that became the jumping-off point for the episode. Queen's perspective at the beginning of this episode, how would you describe that? I think the Queen is still feeling bruised from the battering that the royal family's image took following the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. It was extremely rare for there to be such open criticism of the monarchy and of the Queen personally. For example, at the height of the War of the Waleses and the tabloid scandals in 1992, you'd get very little direct criticism of the Queen. People might say the Queen needs to get her act together, but they would not be criticising her personal leadership, her commitment to duty. These would be taken as given. So the idea that the Queen and the the members of the royal family would be personally criticised for their perceived lack of compassion is something very bruising, and I don't think the monarchy has recovered by this point. Mm. It's really interesting because there are moments throughout the show where occasionally we are taken out of the kind of, you know, the royal perspective, so to speak. So whether it's the Moo Moo episode or whether it's Fagin is another great example. And and then there are some moments that surprise us sometimes, but there are so great and brilliant ways of driving narrative. And it's with this episode, it's the dream sequence, which is not a normal or natural thing to happen in the crown. So it's, it really sort of packs a punch and makes a point, I think. Talk a little bit about the decision and, and creating and writing that and why that was the choice to have that at the start of the episode. Yeah, the dream sequence is a very wild thing to have in a Crown episode. We've tried over the years to incorporate dream sequences. Um, I think we had one in the Fagin episode at one point, but it didn't make it to the script in the end. In this case, the dream sequence was, uh, I think, pivotal to Peter's conception of the episode. And I think it really distills the themes of the episode of the government in the Ascendant Mm and the monarchy on the downswing. Also, thinking about it in the context of where the episode comes in the series, we and the royal family have just been through the ringer following the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. We've had a lot of very emotionally fraught episodes. I I think there is a sense that there's time for a palate cleanser. And what better palate cleanser than this very wild departure from realism? But after almost 50 years on the throne, It's out with Queen Elizabeth and in with King Tony. New Britain has a new royal family, the Labour Party. 
It's the tone of the episode as well is brilliant. There's a lot of comedy in this. And we see the Queen, you know, when she's given that speech to the WI as well, where there's a comfortableness and a relaxed nature in in and amongst her, her people, basically, WI. Yeah. But for people listening all over the world mm-hmm. who do, thank you, can you explain to people what the WI is, who are not aware of what it is? Yeah, the Women's Institute is the largest women's voluntary organisation in Britain. Um, the movement started in Canada in the late 19th century, but it took off in Britain in a big way. And uh, to the popular imagination, they're largely associated with the Second World War, with fundraising, with boosting domestic food production. Uh, you know, the, the the stereotypical image is making jam. A typical village branch of the WI will have, you know, classes in flower arranging, baking. There'll be talks to local historian, crochet, exactly. <laughs> but there is another side to them as well, which is... Um, as a campaigning organisation, whether it's Keep Britain Tidy, Equal Pay, HIV AIDS Awareness in the 1980s, and they're very formidable. And as Tony Blair finds out, underestimate them at your peril. <laughs> Is it fun to write an episode that's tonally like this, that's got those kind of comedic moments to it? I think one of the most nourishing and satisfying things in the writing of this episode, as I worked with Peter to discover the soul of the episode was embracing the eccentricity. The outline had originally been a lot more political. The jockeying between Downing Street and the White House had been more prominent. As we expanded the royal element, and in particular looked at the position of the household, that really helped open things out. And when you're researching the Queen, you discover a lot of factoids. I bet. Most of which do not get used and are just filling surplus space in, in your head, which I will carry to the grave. <laughs> um, or until you need to write about them. Yeah, but when we were reading about the early discussions between Downing Street and Buckingham Palace, mm. one of the things that came up was the question of um, flummery, as it was called. The state opening of Parliament was a particular arena of all of these heralds and perseverance and... Uh, as Tony Blair says, the gold stick in waiting, the silver stick in waiting. Mm. And yeah, this was something that, as we drilled into it, really uh, had a lot of mileage, I think. Yeah. So why was it important to include the Queen's exploration of these roles within our own organisation, so to speak? What is it telling us? What's, you know, what is it telling the viewer? This episode asks the question, what is monarchy about? And in particular, what is the British monarchy about? Mm -hmm. Comparison is made between the British monarchy and other monarchies, how in, say, the Netherlands, in the Nordic countries, the monarchy is smaller and much more casual. Um, I saw there was a viral photo a while ago of, I think, the Queen of Denmark just browsing in hatchards, just in the true crime section, (laughs) with very limited security. And you could never imagine the Queen or the King doing that. And I think for the Queen, it's the question of, if you're going to do it, do it properly. Older British listeners will recall a kind of cigarette called Capstan Full Strength. You know, high tar, high nicotine, you know, this is the really strong stuff. Margaret probably smoked it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The British monarchy is Capstan Full Strength monarchy. You know, they've got the ancient titles, they've got the flummery. They have quite wide legal powers on paper. They're not in practice. You know, they exist on a scale of pomp and ceremony that is not reflected on the European continent, for example. And this episode asks, what are the potential pathways 
for the monarchy. What role does all of this flummery play? And also, with the question of a rational monarchy, a democratic monarchy, is this a category error? Is it even worth being rational? Does that defeat the point? And I think the point where the Queen realises that rational reform is something administered by sterile bureaucrats, um, whereas the monarchy and all of the ancient titles which cannot be justified on rational lines uh, are still full of colour and idiosyncrasy and eccentricity. Uh, the Queen's herb strewer, the washer of the sovereign's hands. That is only once per reign and only when I'm in residence at Holyrood House. Still, uh, a royal barge master and 24 watermen, even though there hasn't been a royal barge since 1849. A warden of the swans, Someone has to oversee the swans in England's inland waterways, over which the Crown has an ancient prerogative right. But is that prerogative right? In this episode, we see Blair at the peak of his popularity, and, you know, in hindsight now, he's not perceived as that, really, no. because of, you know, various decisions that he made, the Iraq War being, being one of them. Yeah. Did you have conversations with Peter in, you know, writing that, with knowing that, information now in terms of how he was written for the Crown's Tony Blair? When you look back at the culture of the first few years of the new Labour government, mm. it's very striking just how much optimism there is. You know, obviously we, we look back at it through the prism of uh, Iraq and the wheels later coming off. Yeah. But in 1997, they seem to be carrying all before them. And in 1999, they still seem to be defying political gravity this is a government that's come in after 18 years of Tory government. People have an appetite for change. They have a huge majority, a majority of 179. They have huge political authority and huge political capital. And what is striking is that usually a government at this stage, two years after the election, um, will be succumbing to the midterm blues. If you look at Major two years after his election victory or or Thatcher in 1981, two years after hers, they were in the complete doldrums. They were doing terribly. Whereas Tony Blair has huge, really high approval ratings. Labour still has 30-point leads over the Conservatives in polls. People were saying, will there ever be a Conservative government ever again? You know, Labour are talking themselves as uh, the natural party of government, which is the way that the Conservatives used to talk about themselves. So looking back, we can see this as hubris. But at the time... They are really defying political gravity. Now it's time to hear from Eric Richter-Strand, who returned to The Crown to direct episodes six and nine of season six. Eric, welcome back to the Thank podcast. You. It's Thank so you. good to have you back. It really, really is. How has it been coming back for the final season of The Crown for you? Oh, it's been great. It's been sort of coming back to people that I know, both in front of the camera and behind the camera, the actors... Knowing everyone, just going straight to work has been lovely. And it's also been a feeling of being part of something that's coming to the end of a journey, of a long journey. Yeah. Um, which feels significant. Is that a different experience from the first time? It is. Yeah, it is. It's also because my previous experience, which was season five, I had two episodes that were in a way one story. Mm -hmm. And it was like telling a feature film divided in two and... This time, my episodes six and nine are quite different and they have different functions within the season and they have um, 
different feelings, different tones. Yeah. So it's quite different. Like I had to prep for two very different stories, whereas last time I could do all my prep for the one story. And last season as well, much of your episodes played like outside of the royal world. This time you still have things going on outside the world, but you dip your toe much more firmly in the classic crown locations. How's that to navigate? Yeah, it's great. Last <laughs> year, I have to be honest, I had a bit of location envy. Because Did thought, you? Yeah, a little bit. Because <laughs> I've been watching so many episodes where they're, they're in the audience room and I didn't have a single audience room scene oh. last season because my whole episode is about you know, the Bashir interview was taking place so much outside yeah. the royal palaces. And now this season, I think I got more audience rooms than anyone. So. How were the audience rooms for you? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, but be careful what you wish for, okay. because it's, you know, there's a formula to that. Like, yeah. She sits and he sits <laughs> and they don't get up you until she gets up. No. So it is, um, it's fun yeah. and it's great because you get to really focus on the dialogue and you get to really focus on the acting. Mm. There isn't that much else to distract you. Yeah. And then that has to be good otherwise yeah. it gets really boring mm. so yeah that was challenging but a lot of fun and also i got to go to all these other buckingham palace locations we have like wilton and lancaster house and and stage one and, and elstree and all these places that i hadn't really filmed in so that was great oh you got a proper tour around them all as well um episode six you've got the queen with this kind of slight anxiety that's there underlying you know we never really see the emotions of the queen but you can sense a bit of anxiety there hence she reaches out to tony blair for advice uh, and then the wi and then this whole thing i mean imelda's performance in this episode is kind of extraordinary and shows us so many different sides to this character i feel that we haven't seen before do you mind talking a little bit about working with imelda on this particular episode and what that was like uh, obviously imelda comes from you know, after one, two, three, four, and five in the season, which are all quite heavy, yeah, and the subject matter is really sad and depressing. This episode comes in with a bit of a different tone. Yeah, it has a lighter touch. There is a bit of humor and comedy in it, even. And I think Imelda really appreciates that. She has a range, and she can, you know, she brings immediately to any scene the sort of a, a very good sort of basic. This is what the scene is for me, and I don't really do very much. <laughs> you <say> that. <laughs> no, she is brilliant. And, you know, she comes in with a, with a real strong idea about what she thinks it is. And obviously she knows the WI, she knows she's done the research, she knows what Tony Blair represents. But so we work together to getting all those things right. And then, um, yeah, I just sort of very, very subtly fine tune every small detail that, that we together agree on. When we see the Queen perform those speeches in front of the WI there's a confidence and there's a connection there and a, a relaxed nature that we don't see her give speeches to in other formats is there you know was there documentation or footage of the Queen in those situations that we, you were able to kind of pull on both for how you would shoot it but also for Melda and things like that that you're aware of not that I'm aware mm. of no I didn't see any footage of her talking yeah. to the WI but I like the idea that when she's in front of those ladies, she's on sort of home turf and yeah, she, yeah. she can feel... She's with her tribe. Yeah, this is like, <laughs> this is her core constituents anyway. Yeah. And the way that you've shot it at times, it's like stand-up almost in a way. Exactly. <laughs> it's like slightly bad stand-up, yeah. you know. It's like, it's, it's filmed very straight, you know, and it's all about when Imelda looks up. But you, you learn very early on 
from her very first line in that scene, she gets a response from the people in the audience. Mm. They're so eager to just interact and communicate with her mm. and show her that she's loved by them that it comes naturally and she looks up and then she realizes gradually through her speech that, oh, I can actually play it for comedy. So she even <laughs> ends the speech with a joke, which is clearly prepared in advance. <laughs> and it's really fun to then find the right way for Imelda to perform that, where you can see that, which well, is not a naturally gifted comedian. <laughs> the Queen isn't. Yeah. Imelda is, but the Queen isn't. So yeah. you're finding that way. It's like, well, that's too funny, actually, Imelda. You have to, <laughs> you have to make it a bit more awkward. <laughs> and she did that brilliantly. Can you imagine a city run and populated entirely by the WI? <laughs> It would have the tidiest streets in Britain. Yes. Everything would run on time. Yes. And we would take all the men's jobs. As you mentioned, this episode's got loads of audience scenes between the Queen and her Prime Minister, Tony Blair. But tell me about working with Bertie Carville to find his Blair. What were the conversations you had with Bertie with regards to the character and I guess where he's at in this episode? Bertie is a very different process than Imelda. Bertie's extremely devoted and ambitious and detail-oriented and really wants to get, which I can understand, especially when you're portraying someone who everybody has an idea of exactly how how he is, yeah. as Imelda does as well. Yeah, But finding that sort of the right Blairisms and the right diction and the right intonation of the voice and the way he moves and talks and makes this statement and, you know, all that <laughs> sort of staccato, statement, the yeah. staccato thing. It's almost like he's thinking on the fly and, you know, he's got this <laughs> great way of communicating, which is sort of much, you know, the thing that perhaps sets him apart from someone like Gordon Brown, who's an easier communicator with people. And I think Imelda or the Queen in this episode admires that in him, can see that, that even though he's more of a populist, say, than she is, mm. that obviously he's doing something right. And it would be stupid of me not to try and take advantage of that or find out how I could maybe be influenced by it. It's no secret that the Crown has not had the best time of it in recent years. Often our values and those of the country have not been perfectly aligned. You, on the other hand, since you entered number 10, you've shown an uncanny ability to read the mood of the country better than anyone. And so I can't help but ask, what would you do to turn things round for us if you were in charge? If I were in charge of the monarchy? If you were in my shoes? If I were king. Yes. You mentioned that she asks him for kind of advice and one of those things is to kind of look at the the various corners of the monarchy and the estate and what goes on and whose roles are, are needed and, and what's needed. And it sends her into a really brilliant kind of journey of discovery in a way. She's kind of almost updating her own memory of what these things are, who these people are and what they do. Yeah. And like she's blowing the dust and cobwebs off some of the corners in the palace. Because, yeah. Yeah. To find out, okay, who do we actually have on the payroll? And <laughs> yeah. What do they do? And are they necessary and, you know, are they hereditary or are they hired on the basis of merit or do they have an expertise? What would happen if they suddenly weren't there? 
We've had the most lovely opportunity to, you know, we love hanging out with Annie Salzberger. She's phenomenal. And we've had the wonderful opportunity to meet her research team on yep. this season as well. Do you get stuck into research? What's that collaboration like with you and that research team? I love it. <laughs> I love talking to the research team and I love getting this immense, you know, um, archive of detail that they have and these ideas that sometimes come the script team yeah. as well, working very close with the research team, like in this case, finding the right titles, the right the right people, the job titles. So who do we have? What, what sounds like fun and they still exist and they were there since, you know, the 1300s, you know, the warden of the swans or the yeah. washer of the sovereign's hands or the Lord Admiral of the Wash. You know, there are all these great titles <laughs> yeah. of people who have these jobs that you think, well, that's ridiculous. But hang on, if you really dig into it, maybe there is a knowledge there and a, a tradition that we could be served well by carrying on. And mm. so, yeah, I do a lot of, well, I had a lot of fun with the research team to try and find that, which is finding the balance of what is actually funny yeah, and still significant and still feels like, okay, I can make these people, even though they're very short on screen, I can make them into real characters. What is your official title? Astronomer Royal. Paper to the Sovereign. Lord High Admiral of the Wash, ma'am. And my responsibilities also include folding all 170 of the embroidered white linen napkins. Oh, that's you? Yes, ma'am. You are clever. How on earth do you do that? Few have truly mastered the Dutch bonnet napkin fold. The swan is a pure and graceful beast. How's your 15th century calligraphy, Robert? Coming up, I'll speak to Bertie Carvel on portraying Prime Minister Tony Blair. But now, as you'll know if you've listened to this podcast over the past few years, we like to shine a spotlight on the fascinating teams who bring the world of the Crown to life from behind the scenes. So let's meet Owen Harrison, who is the long-standing props master for the show. Owen, it's nice to see you again because we did meet way back when we started this podcast when you very kindly gave me a wee tour around one of <laughs> your kind of props. I was going to say cave, but that's that's an unkind thing to say, kind of. I mean, it was a cavern. It was huge. Well, I think the technical name is like a store. But store, I think okay, there we go. Which store. there are a few, you are right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what does a master of property do on a show? I think the title's grander than the actual role, in fairness. Um, Come but on. we take it. <laughs> I think we're quite happy to take it. You oversee the prop department, basically, day-to-day -day running of things, where you're going in and out of sets, how they're dressed, where they're finalised, yeah, and delivering them to make sure they're in the right condition to shoot on, really. It's crazy, the attention to detail that we take for granted as viewers. You know, we right, see yeah. things in scenes, but having the luxury of being on set a couple of times and being able to see things in person and what lens are you go to to get things right and to have things, authentic things within those scenes sure. that fit the period, fit the location. There's a lot of work involved. Yeah, I mean, one of my favourite things that someone found out about was the um, toffee sweets that were in Margaret Thatcher's drawer of her desk in Downing Street. And when we showed Gillian that they were actually there, 
today, you know, made her feel a lot more comfortable with being in a set for the first time. So that's the sort of level of detail it gets to, yeah. It's nice to think that you kind of almost have little surprises for the actors that even they don't mm. know about that is there. I, from time to time, it's not, things like that are fun, but you don't, you try not to throw them too many surprises. Otherwise, mm. you know, it might be off-putting for them or for what they've rehearsed already. Did Olivia get to take her teacups home with her with her face on it? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my favourite things that I saw was that was the kind of, was, oh my, it's Olivia's face on the teacup. That's brilliant. I think one of the other things they always like is the stamp as well. When they've all, it, all the three queens have all had their silhouettes on the stamps. That's always <laughs> something that slightly freaks them out, but how it's did, a great thing. And yeah. how did you get involved in The Crown then? Most jobs, I suppose, in uh, film and TV, sort of our level, the phone rings, you answer it from someone you've worked with before. It was originally sold to me as, uh, yeah, doing a job about the royal family. It's five days a week. It's all in the studio. It's going to be great. You know, six, seven months, that that should be it, done and dusted. It's for this new company, Net something or other. And, um, yeah, they used to sell CDs or DVDs or something. So, uh, yeah, that, that was it. I went in, I finished the film. I couldn't start straight away. My friend of mine, Peter, who I worked with for years, I said to the guy that was employing us, I said, do you need anyone else? He said, I'll bring someone you know with you. So Peter and I walked in there on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. After they'd all started a week and a half late and that was it. We would have been there ever since. I remember when we were in your Aladdin's cave, as I'm going to call it, <laughs> okay. was, the, was kind of looking up and almost kind of going on like, you know, like the height wise of it and there being kind of shelf upon shelf of suitcases and then chairs and light fittings light shades Christmas decorations newspapers yeah yeah. it's all of that like a a Christmas tree in the background you know it's just in the background at Balmoral but that whole thing's got to be decorated and props are on that but they've got to be they've got to fit the period they've got to fit yeah I mean, they, they not to give too much away, but they're almost like a normal bauble, but covered with 50s paper or something. You know, it's just a normal thing, but in a different style, completely different style. Newspapers blew my mind. <laughs> it's only over the top sheet, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, don't spoil it. Don't say that. You must Graphics have like this me. amazing kind of, you know, learning about all this stuff as well as you go along yeah. and the knowledge that you acquire about crime property <laughs> yeah i mean one of the i think one of the best things you know you do learn a lot more about or i've learned a lot more about the royal family than i was ever knew at school or from anywhere else and you know the buildings you get to go into is another fascinating part for us you know you get access to places that really you shouldn't <laughs> you really shouldn't but you do because of the, the job that grew and grew and everyone loves it there are so many fans out there and they go, oh yeah, it's great they're coming to film here and it, it does open a lot of doors. Even things like pens. Uh-huh. You know, and stationery and yeah. all that. Or the headed paper and everything, yeah. That's all going to get made? Uh, or- yeah, the paper, the paper's all generated, all those headed papers. Yeah, the, the research, the graphics, especially in clearances and everything put into it is incredible. Absolutely incredible. And the paper's got to match the era of when, you yeah, know. same colours, all, all yeah. that sort of jazz. I mean, even the magazines, you know, sort of like if you look in sort of Diana's apartments at Kensington Palace, all the magazines, the right typeface, all those sorts of things. All the DVDs, the games, the games consoles that the uh, the two princes had and everything. It's all it's all there. The technology side of things is quite interesting because it tells the story in a way in itself of kind of, 
you know, the era, telephones. Tele- mobile telephones are a bane of most properties. <laughs> really? Life. Why? Because you can buy it. You can go on eBay. You can buy a box of like Nokia 33210s or whatever, which is fine. None of them work. You can't, there's the charges for them, but none of the batteries work. They've all died or they're just so old. They don't work. So you end up having to take the whole thing apart. It then goes to a practical electrician to then... When we had a whole series where um, William has to receive a call from Kate and they have to light up to have to show, because it would do. They have I was going to see why night, do they need to work? They have to light up because you can see the shadow of the light on their face. So you have to see the green glow that you would have had on the phones then. So then that, that goes to our practical electricians who then put a battery pack, who have a trigger switch on the side of the phone for the actress, then to, as she answers the call, to pull the triggers for it to light up. Wow. So you have all those sorts of like odd little things that get in the way. But, you know. I really wanted to know what what happens to those. I mean, is there a number on how many props? Have you got got a number? I could could give you my telephone number and that could be close. I mean, there's there's tens of thousands of things there. Even just by all the small stuff and the Mm -hmm. glassware and all the, just even the paintings alone, you know. We've had to move stages where we're closing down now, but it takes like a day and a half just to move paintings. What's going to happen to them? There's going to be um, uh, a tailored auction at Bonhams. Hopefully a lot of that stuff gets sold. There are specific prop hire companies out there that just deal with lighting, that just deal with sort of period furniture. They'll be very interested in buying a lot of the stock Mm -hmm. stuff from us. I mean, even the lampshades, of which there were several hundreds just hanging from the ceilings on bits of string and stuff, that they will stay within the film industry. They get passed out to other companies to make sure that, you know, very, very, very little gets thrown away. The cast must ask to get a memento to take away with them. I get no comment. <laughs> I couldn't possibly say. I mean, there's uh, a lot of oh, could I possibly? The last couple of weeks of shooting are always the ones on any job, the ones that I go. Oh, um, so what's happening with that sofa? Or oh, wow, a sofa. I was thinking all like sorts a, of things. I was all thinking th- like a teapot. I mean, randomly, my first ever flat was furnished by Blue Peter <laughs> <laughs> when I went to the BBC. They had a Japanese themed week. Next thing you know, both of us had like futon beds. There was like a low coffee table. <laughs> Parks you know, the job. Absolutely. You know, you know, we're looking after it. So I'd have liked a, a stamp of each of the queens. Funny enough, four of those have gone missing. I don't know where they could have ended I've up. I've not been anywhere near your props okay. department right. for okay. four you years. You seem to know where it is. <laughs> How would you describe that kind of environment that the Crown's created and built? over these 60 60 episodes but you know who's counting (laughs) we've been quite fortunate in a position to take on trainees each season which I think is very important and certainly bringing younger people into the industry is a great privilege of ours and Left Bank and have been very supportive of this across most departments but when they come in for the interviews we take them on a tour of the studios and it goes basically from you can start down in one stage and there's the plane or there's another set and then you sort of work your way up and go in through um, another stage where it's the interior of Buckingham Palace and then you can go around to the back lot and you walk through these big metal gates and suddenly you're in the compound of the inside of Buckingham Palace and then you walk another I don't know 100, 150 paces and you're standing outside Downing Street and you turn to your left and you're outside the Ritz in Paris and they're the sort of big exterior sets and I think that sort of knocks their socks off a little bit and hopefully makes people want to really get involved in it. 
Now let's turn our attention back to episode six. Here's Bertie Carvel, who plays one of Britain's most famous prime ministers, Tony Blair. Being cast as, as Tony Blair, what was that journey into finding out you had the part? Pretty straightforward, really. I got a call to say, we've been talking about you doing Blair. <laughs> Do you want to go and meet Peter? Yeah. I had already done The Crown, so I had... Had um, you? I, I quite liked the idea of being in it twice. <laughs> You're not I've, the only one. I, I gather that's true, actually. In fact, a friend people. of mine rang me in because there was a piece in the press when I, it was announced I was going to do it, saying, you know, Bertie Carvel will be the only actor to be in The Crown twice. And my friend was like, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in it twice. Um, so... I must have it's a competition now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> like, thank, thank you to Netflix publicists. <laughs> There's no more seasons, so you can't have Well, it. I did quite like the idea of being in it. So I like the idea that there'd be a quiz question. Who would go to this quiz? I don't know. But, you know, which actor has been in The Crown twice? And some boffin would go, I know the answer to this. It's Bertie Carvel. And actually, I would have been in it in like 17 different roles. So I'm trying <laughs> to get myself into the back of everyone else's shot. Wearing a variety of <laughs> wigs. and uh, I love that. What was the appeal for you to play in this character? Well, I mean, he's a towering figure and I've done a lot of... Um, I, su I suppose I've sort of... I don't like the phrase character actor, but I end up using it a lot to describe what my career has been in as much as I don't really see how you can not be a character actor unless you're playing yourself. <laughs> but um, I guess it describes a certain kind of variety or diversity of roles and a difference, maybe like a, a superficial difference between the person you present as in life and the characters that you play. And I really enjoy that. And it's like an added challenge and joy when you're playing people who have a kind of real world corollary, in other words, real mm. people, because there's um, like a, a living document for everyone to compare your performance against. And I like the challenge. Now, I've done quite a lot of that. I've done quite a lot of it um, on stage in different plays. Um, I've played people like Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump and so on. And I've done it a lot in television. It's quite a joy to be able to do it on such a big stage mm. as a show as this. And then, you know, the character of Blair himself, I guess I didn't at that stage know what Peter was going to write. I saw, yeah. you know, I went to meet him and we talked around, I think it was the speech that Blair makes the morning after the death of Diana yeah. was kind of written, but of course it's a verbatim speech. So I was able to do that with Peter in the room. But my, you know, try as I could to mine him for information about what story he would wanted to tell about Blair. He played his cards pretty close to his chest. <laughs> and and also he's had written, you know, three or four major pieces of work featuring Blair. So yeah. it was a pretty good bet that he wouldn't go back to that. So I had really no idea what I was getting into. I don't know. I, so curiosity killed the cat. And at that stage, he hadn't decided what that was going to be yeah. in season six of The Crown or even season five. I mean, we met, by the way, quite late on. They were already more than halfway through shooting season five. And I think a late decision was made to put Blair into season five so that the kind of arrival of that yeah. uh, moment um, could happen at the end. You know, the new dawn could happen at the, the end handover. of that and you wouldn't have yeah. to kind of burden season six with that. To play him as he was then and not as we 
from whatever angle may consider him to be with the benefit of hindsight, I think is really exciting. I hope you didn't slip on the way here. Ma'am. It can't be easy walking on water. <laughs> <laughs> Please, do sit down. So, you insisted the West no longer stand by while genocide and slaughter take place and pulled it off without a single NATO casualty in combat. Great credit must go to the Americans. When they signaled their openness to a ground invasion, Milosevic realized the game was up. But Clinton's change of heart is in great part thanks to you. It's one thing to have popularity. It's quite another to have influence. So I offer you my congratulations. A thing that comes with Tony Blair is Cherie and just you and Lydia together are, there's a really lovely tone there with those conversation as moments when you're together, the two of you. Yeah. Was that a fun kind of playground to be in with it's, Lydia? Yeah, it's amazing to, like she is so good as Cherie and um, in terms of the magic trick of persuading people that you are who you, what you say you are, which is, that's all of the job. That's all an actor has to do is like... Believe me. Persuade people to believe you. And once they do, then they can get interested in what you're feeling and all of that stuff that we like to think that. But to, ha to have Lydia being so amazing as Cherie, it instantly, I think, completes the picture and supports... I mean, she's almost too good because... She's so um, cheeky. She's so, <laughs> she's so convincing, I think, as yeah. Cherie that... You know, there are moments where I'm thinking, God, I think she might be much more convincing than I am. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> but, um, but actually, like it. Um, They're like a double I think act. That chemistry is, is really important and also helps with the sense that they've got a life off stage, yeah. which you kind of want in, like, I, li I like watching plays where, you know, the person with least to do comes on and brings a whole load of story. So, how was it? A little frosty. I bet. Well, she promised to give our proposals some further thought. Oh. Well, if she doesn't and the people get fed up with them, she'll only have herself to blame. Britain is mature enough as a country and a democracy now to live without this nonsense. The preservation of the monarchy is her life's work. She must know that they have to change in order to survive. But they don't want to change, Tony. I mean, she probably thinks the only way to survive is to double down on the madness. Like the Catholic Church. Let's not bring the church into this. Well, they modernised and the old guard's never forgiven them for it. Why? Because they got rid of the Latin and the incense and the miracles and the mystery and people stopped coming. This is different. Is it? What's been wonderful throughout the season is watching these, you know, prime ministers come through those doors mm. to sit and have those audiences with. And what's really interesting about Tony Blair and your performance is obviously this is someone that we know and we we have memories of his journey. And at this point where his popularity is is huge, you know, he's he's riding high at this this point. And she's very much intimidated by that. You do get that sense that he's kind of got, I've got a lot of stuff going on outside this room that I kind of 
really needs to be getting on with as well. But he still has opinions and thoughts about her world as well, which make her think about and question a lot of stuff. And I think it's so fascinating because mm. it's almost like loads of that is not said, but it's there and the weight of it's there. I mean, it's really interesting about, you know, what, what makes... <laughs> If we'd had this conversation before I shot any of it, yeah. I'd probably have piled right in because I'd have essentially been telling you what I want those scenes to be or what I think those scenes are about yeah. in the abstract yeah. or what I'm... But the thing is about acting is that you do a whole load of things intentionally and a whole load of things that kind of happen for free. Yeah. And with good filmmakers, they'll pick the interesting stuff from both of that. So, you know, I can tell you that in shooting those scenes, it's no surprise, you know, of course, like what we're discussing is threatening to the Queen because the intellectually, I guess, the kind of, particularly in that episode six, Blair is a modernizer and essentially, I suppose it's about the meeting place of modernity and this arch modernizer who is not disrespectful, I don't think, no. or iconoclastic but who is trying to kind of, in a very Blairite way, he's trying to hold the kind of radical, um, modernizing, socialist, progressive stuff mm -hmm. and also keep that in the room with yeah. the world that the Queen is sort of yeah. sits at the top of, which is tradition, antiquity, maybe something that might be feel slightly regressive or reactionary, I guess. And, and he's trying to find a way through to kind of without breaking that thing yeah. or putting it off <laughs> yeah. to sort of bring it into the 21st century, 20th century. Um, Even the scene where you, you're, it's almost like you've come to the end of a conversation and you get up to leave and then a conversation reignites and you both sit back down again. Yeah, that was fun, that sort of moment, you know, can arise. I remember that scene because Peter had come to the set that day and, I think if it's the same scene I'm thinking of, it was the last audience that we shot and there'd been some changes and Peter wanted to kind of talk through those before we shot the scene. Mm. But then when we rehearsed it and with Eric and Imelda, it became really clear that that moment was key. That yeah. the scene that the that they aren't having in the for the bulk of the audience yeah. um, is the scene that then... Blair goes, by the way, you know, did you have any thoughts about my proposals? Yeah. And so it's been hanging in the air. <laughs> yeah. And I think we sort of come into imagining that they've had an entire audience Absolutely. not talking about this huge intervention mm -hmm. that he's made. And so, yeah, quite the kind of um, the dance of how they... Actually get to the point of what they should be talking about. Yeah, yet. and use the formality and break the formality mm. is, is interesting. And that's, yeah. I think, what animates those scenes and stops them just being, you know, always a reprise of the yeah. same motif. My office sent some suggestions ahead of the state opening of Parliament. I was wondering if you had a chance to look at them. Rather more than that. I discussed them with my family. Believe it or not... For my first child, it was still custom to summon the Home Secretary to witness a royal birth. My father put a stop to it with my consent, so I'm not against reform. The question is what is worth preserving and where to draw the line. We have now conducted a thorough review of all the offices in my household, and what we discovered was not indefensible extravagance or luxury, or a collection of empty Ruritanian titles 
but an extraordinary array of precious expertise. Skills that have been passed down to generations, often within the same families. And the vehicle for that continuity is the crown. The spell that we cast and have cast for centuries is our immutability. Tradition is our strength, respect for our forebears, and the preservation of generations of their wisdom and learned experience. Modernity is not always the answer. Sometimes antiquity is too. I'm Edith Bowman. I'd like to give special thanks to our guests on this episode, Bertie Carvel, Daniel Mark Jaynes, Owen Harrison and Eric Richter-Strand. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Sony Music Entertainment in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time for episode seven, titled Alma Mater. When Prince William takes up his place at St Andrews University, he struggles to balance his status and student life. He develops a crush on Kate Middleton, his popular course mate. But his failure to impress her leaves him questioning his future at uni altogether. St Andrews can feel quite small and remote. And the course. I used to enjoy history of art at school, but... Now I struggle to see the point in it. Oh, that's sad. The girl he likes has found herself a real man. I think that's why he's feeling sorry for himself. Oh, what a shame. William, darling. Really? You'll stick it out, though. You're not actually thinking of leaving. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts.